Hello, and welcome again to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Thanks for listening. On this podcast, we explore the big ideas at length with authors who are grappling with them. This podcast is supported in part by Town Hall Seattle. You can check out my other podcasts that I do with them, excerpts from some of our interviews, at In the Moment, a Town Hall Seattle podcast. But on this podcast, the full interview. Uber has disrupted the taxi industry all around the world, but its way of doing business may be reshaping other industries as well. Alex Rosenblatt is a technology ethnographer, a social scientist who learns from strangers and analyzes the technologies they use that shape their place in society. She took hundreds of rides with hundreds of drivers around the country. She found that drivers are not actually freewheeling entrepreneurs, but constrained workers managed and manipulated by algorithms. Uberland, How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Rules of Work, explores the brave new world that Uber is shaping. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, I do. You don't um, really I would know. recommend turning the video off because it can get really laggy. Done. We might have to revert to the older technology of the phone. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to have to visit New York. It would be a whole thing. That would be fine. Is, it, <laughs> is that where you live? That is where I live, yep. I, uh, I just drove through New York State two weeks ago with a buddy of mine, but we went way north. We wanted to go through like, the... We went through the Finger Finger Lakes. We were on side oh, roads. Oh, that's a beautiful region. Oh, it was incredible. Just incredible. I did not know because I'm, I'm I was born in the Midwest, but I hightailed it to the West Coast as soon as I could in college and never really looked back. But I got to say the Finger Lakes and then, the, and then Adirondacks were every bit as mm-hmm. lovely as, as a, a lot, lots of the West Coast. It was beautiful. I often do the drive between New York and Montreal. And so I get to see a lot of that sort of upstate New York along a certain corridor. (laughs) But the West Coast is pretty amazing. My sister lives in Vancouver. So whenever I get out to Seattle for work, I actually try and jump over. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you have to do that. I'm going to go to Vancouver in the next week just to because I haven't been there in a while. And I want to want to get up there again because it's such a great city. Cool. Um, All right. Okay. You researched this book by taking a lot of rides. Do you know how many rides you took? Um, I know I took over 400 and did, and did like 125 interviews. At this point, like since I finished the, the book, I've obviously done more. But for the material of the book, it was, you know, hundreds of rides. And I spent, in addition, a lot of time in online forums. And those are networks that drivers have forged to communicate about their job and share information. So it's like Facebook groups and Uber driver dedicated websites. And even if they start as Uber driver places, they very quickly expand to include any kind of ride hail work. So you continue to ride, use the ride sharing uh, Uber and Lyft to get around New York City, for example? Uh, In New York City, you can actually have quite a lot of options. So between Uber and Lyft and Juno and there's Via and there's taxis and there's the subway. Um, I I certainly continue to use ride hailing services. How do you feel about that after having written this book? Well, they're incredibly efficient. (laughs) And I can see why they're such a popular service, you know, like despite all of the negative PR that Uber in particular has accumulated for being deceptive or being a shady middleman or, you know, uh, outwitting regulators or operating in the underground, 
they've still provided a service that consumers enjoy and benefit from. A thing I find fascinating because when Uber runs into legal challenges over its status as a company, some cities might consider it an illegal taxi app, for example, it leverages its popularity with consumers to reduce judicial or legal conflicts to issues of popular choice. And that's been fascinating to see. That is fascinating. But you but Uberland is about not just the the positive gains, but how Uber is emblematic of, of the way workers are going or are being and maybe are going to be treated in this economy. And and um, that's not all bright, according to you. So it's not all good. And you know, it's not just it's not just drivers either. Like to me, Uber brings the culture and practices of Silicon Valley to the world of work. And it's easier to see where you can be misled or take advantage of when your livelihood is at stake, as it is for drivers. But the practices that Uber brings, you know, managing people with algorithms or using the rhetoric of neutral technology to argue that it's, you know, not a taxi company, not a transportation company, it's a technology company. These rhetorics are rooted in other platform services that we consume, like Facebook or Google or YouTube. You are a scientist. You're also a writer. I work as a writer, and and so I work freelance. How different is what Uber is doing with its drivers than the way freelancers have always been treated by the the economy and the businesses they work for? There are lots of freelancers who love what they do as independent contractors, right, or being in charge of their own businesses, especially like upper-level, upper-tier professionals. And I think Uber was able to leverage some of that goodwill to market the work of driving in a similar capacity, implying you would have freedom and an array of choices and the power to run and grow your own business. But I think how drivers experience it is quite different than the way that Uber builds it. So drivers, for example, during the course of my research would have the power to negotiate a lower pay rate, but not a higher one. They wouldn't know how valuable the fare was until they showed up to take it. And if they declined it or canceled it, they were at risk of being deactivated by their algorithmic manager. A technology word that deflects from the fact that you're about to be fired or suspended. And so what we actually saw was the sort of celebrated ideal of freelance work being used to mask a system of management that actually restricted the information you had and the power you had to make informed decisions. I mean, you couldn't build your own client list and grow your business, for example. You couldn't know the value of the fare before you accepted it, and you weren't uh, really permitted to decline it afterwards. I mean, you could, but then your ride acceptance rates and your cancellation rates would be negatively affected. And if you fell below a certain threshold that Uber set, like having a 90% ride acceptance rate or a 5% cancellation rate, you're at risk of being fired. So you're not an employee, yet you are a worker and you're in some, under some kind of contract. How does Uber, um, either physically or through the algorithms you speak of, how does it communicate with its drivers? Mostly by a combination of 
email in-app text notifications. Uh, last year, they introduced a phone line, uh, which was a novelty at the time because for years, drivers primarily communicated with Uber support by email or sometimes in the app as it evolved. And that basically was the equivalent, the email equivalent of a remote customer service center. And so you might be emailing with somebody located in the Philippines and they would sort of select a template response to your concern. And so Uber had actually outsourced like the communications work uh, to this more uh, semi-automated process. And drivers could find this quite frustrating. They started to call them Uber's robots because they might email in with a concern like a passenger was harassing me or I wasn't paid for a fare or a trip that I completed uh, or I'm owed a cancellation fee because I waited for five minutes before the like for the passenger to appear after I arrived at their pickup location and they never showed and I'm, you know, I'm owed my fee and I'm not getting it. And they would try and email with these remote community support representatives and they would receive back these very rote template responses like they look like auto replies, they look like they're responsive to keywords in your email. Uh, some drivers try to like write human supervisor or manager in the text of their email to try and like trick a system <laughs> into flagging a human to respond to their concern. Uh, so they really didn't have a lot of recourse, especially when something went wrong. You know, the subtitle of Uberland is How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Rules of Work. You touched on that, but how extensive do you think these algorithms are beyond Uberland in terms of rewriting the rules for work? Well, uh, let me tell you a little bit about how it works in Uberland first. It, you know, when Uber came to the forefront of business and tech, and said, like, we've got the technology to scale entrepreneurship for the masses, it was very attractive. You, know, you wouldn't have a human supervisor. You would log in to your work, and you'd start receiving dispatches from an algorithmic dispatcher. And the algorithm was meant to connect you, the driver, with a passenger in need of a ride, uh, which initially to a lot of taxi drivers even seemed more fair because you don't have to tip the dispatcher. Um, a source of favoritism that can really chafe at taxi drivers because it becomes expensive. And so you had this algorithm that was going to do all of this work and Uber presented itself as a sort of neutral tissue, like a credit card facilitator that would just create transactions. And it, it brought the culture and rhetoric of Silicon Valley to work when it did that, to work and consumption. It would say, like, we're just a neutral service, we're a neutral company, we're just technology, we just connect people. Uh, and in fact, it was able to do a couple of things with that rhetoric and with the practices of algorithmic management. So for one, it would describe, of course, the drivers were entrepreneurs and you could be your own boss and you were Uber's partner. And in fact, what I found in my four years of research on the road with drivers is that they were being managed by an algorithm. And there would be this system whereby the algorithms would enact the rules that Uber was setting for how drivers had to behave at work. And that's very, very interesting because it runs up against how we evaluate employment relationships. If you're an employer that leverages significant control over how your workers behave on the job, your relationship to them might be considered one of an employer to an employee. But Uber said, no, 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 we don't 
we have a quite hands-off policy here and practice and driver is our own boss. Uh, but in fact, it was just harder to see beneath the surface because there was not a series of human supervisors looking over the shoulders of drivers. There was an app that was able to monitor their behavior in much more granular ways than a human supervisor could. But despite the fact that drivers are surveilled at work, you know, if they brake too hard, they might get a notification about their safe driving practices. If they accelerate too quickly, they could get a notification if they decline a trip because it's not profitable for them they get a, a notice that they might be fired and so there's and you know their their right acceptance rates are tracked their right cancellations are tracked their their passenger source rating is used to determine whether they're eligible to continue working or not and so you find that there's all these systems in place to actually monitor and standardize how drivers are behaving but it's not a human who's doing it it's algorithms that are keeping track of what drivers are doing, and then encoding the rules of work into how they have to behave. And yet, because everything is formulated as a suggestion, Uber operates in a bit of a gray zone when it comes to employment. So you'll notice across the gig economy that a lot of platforms that classify their workers as independent contractors still have a fundamental business challenge. They still have to standardize the services that all of these hordes of independent contractors are providing. And so they do it through the power of suggestion. They'll say like the top, you know, five, five star drivers behave in the following listicle of ways. And it's not that you have an employee handbook when you start outlining the rules. You have this slightly obscured power that has encoded the rules into the power that the app has over you to fire you or to give you promotions or like promotional incentives. And so it happens in this combination of, okay, we need to avoid the appearance of a direct supervisory relationship, but we also need to communicate the rules and practices. And so how are we gonna do it? And we're gonna do it through a system that rewards people for following the recommended behaviors or penalizes them if they, you know, if their rating falls below 4.6 out of five stars, for example, for some services of drivers. And that's really interesting because what you can accomplish at that point is a severing or a fissuring of an employment relationship while still maintaining significant control over how your workforce of nearly a million active drivers across the US and Canada behaves. And that's a model that can be adopted across industries, not without growing pains, of course, and significant challenges, but technologies being used to buffer a longer standing trend of contingent work and fissured workplaces while still actually maintaining significant control over the choices that you make. And the third leg of it is that all of this is happening under the guise of neutral technology that you know appears to be objective. You know, when an algorithm serves you news items on Facebook, it appears to be without a particular editor or curator selecting that for you. When you're prompted with news or like search results after you query Google, an algorithm is sorting through that information and giving you results to review. And the absence of a particular editor or curator contributes to the sort of overriding myth that narrates what technology is, that it's in fact powerless and yet provides a fundamental service. And what we can see in the workplace is all the ways that algorithms can actually take advantage of unwitting consumers or drivers. 
And the interesting thing is it's not even just drivers, right? It's also passengers who can be, who can have their, their choices shaped by algorithms that appear to be providing them with a neutral you know, choice, but actually could be engaging in price discrimination. For example? For example, uh, Uber has a practice called route-based pricing, where it identifies which passengers are part of an aggregate group of passengers who might traffic on particular routes, and it might assess higher fares for passengers on those routes instead of just charging them the standard per mile and per minute rate. Um, and while that practice, price discrimination, you know, charging you what they think you'll pay, isn't unique to Uber, what it does is it says, oh, this is an innovation in artificial intelligence. Like we have technology that can get determine the following things. And so the technology and the language of it and these like trade, like we're trading on the assumptions of what technology is and that it's this neutral sort of facilitator when in fact, like it's masking uh, business practices. You describe a, uh, a world that is very familiar, eerily familiar and very disturbing. It's many, many science fiction stories that have in the end um, robots uh, controlling humans. I mean, I don't. I know you're not taking it quite that far yet, but I mean, these Uber drivers seem to be transitional figures. When soon it'll be driverless cars, and who knows what else will be replacing humans. But yet, our behavior is modified and and controlled by these decisions we're making. That's that. Does that disturb you? It sounds disturbing to me. Well, I mean, it's interesting to see the ways that algorithms are designed to drive engagement on platforms like Facebook, for example, right? And that's why you see certain news stories, you know, either plummeting or rising right at the top because they might be more salacious or more fringe and suddenly they're central because they're better to engage with. And so you sort of take these ideas of engagement and you're like, oh, I can intervene at the very moment that the worker is about to sign off. And I can say, you know what? Your next passenger is going to be awesome. Like, why don't you keep driving? when you're trying to log out or, hey, there's going to be high demand and you'll get paid a premium on your working hours if you relocate to this particular place at this particular time. Like there's a way in which our activities are monitored electronically that are just so granular that it gives, you know, uh, platforms the power to leverage significant control over the choices that we make. When it comes to whether or not drivers are about to be replaced by self-driving cars, I pause because to me, the idea that the robots are coming for our jobs is that there's a rhetorical move there to suggest that if humans are replaceable, then we don't need to worry about, for example, remedying the labor conditions that drivers work under. And we don't have to be concerned with protection for consumers who might be taken advantage of by similar systems. You know, and so there's a rhetorical flourish to that argument that always has troubled me because it's used as a cudgel to undermine efforts to find better working conditions for people. And so if you're arguing that drivers are misclassified, for example, as uh, independent contractors, and they might potentially be better classified as employees, all of that can be undermined by the rhetoric of, well, the robot's coming for your job anyways. Like, why are you worrying about this? Huh. <laughs> very Trumpian in that sense. <laughs> very, very much about the power of the person who uh, defines your uh, concerns and your fears. 
Well, we see these very interesting plays across Uberland, right? Like where uh, if, for example, the city of New York recently tried to set a wage floor for drivers, they were going to take home a certain amount, you know, after their expenses, it's a little over $17 an hour. And, you know, the companies are making arguments that uh, they won't then be able to provide good services in lower income neighborhoods, which are also, you know, indicative of, uh, lower income communities of color. Like that's what they're talking about. And so there's this way where the ideas of protecting, um, services for an underserved community come into conflict with the idea that there should be a fair wage for the work that people do. And you see this constant, like multifaceted, um, narrative ripple through across all of the conflicts that Uber engages in across hundreds of cities around the world. Yeah, I mean, we saw it in Seattle as Uber and Lyft drivers uh, were in conflict with the taxicab companies. And of course, that's across the country, too. That's right. And in Seattle, there was, I mean, one one move that uh, Uber made was to say that, okay, well, if you want to give a voice to drivers, then you have to give it to most of them. Like drivers who work for five hours a week should be, should have an equal voice to a driver who works for 50 hours a week, you know? And so that's also an interesting example where like part-timers might be effectively pitted against occupational full-time drivers, even if none of them are doing it purposefully. It's just that they have different interests there's always a different coalition of alliances that emerge around any issue that crops up across Uberland. You know, you wrote that uh, Uber's macho approach to disruption, which I think you just laid out, is popularized in our culture. Um, is this uh, a deliberate and sort of philosophical um, idea that's coming out of Uberland? This idea that... Uh, it's very libertarian. It's very Ayn Randian, sort of the way you describe it. Well, there is a celebrated notion of a cowboy, right? Like Travis Kalanick, in some ways, was narrated or presented as a cowboy who was about to disrupt state industries and was going to break a lot of rules and even laws to do it. And in some ways, that's quite celebrated because at the end of the day, consumers get this service that is so incredibly popular. You know, it does solve a problem for them. It gets them much more efficient services to go from A to B. Um, it provides, in some cases, even a form of like mass private transportation. It's starting to threaten public transportation lines. Like cities are faced with choices. Like, do we subsidize ride hail services or do we invest in public transit? And so it has these ripple effects, despite the fact that it came from potentially breaking, you know, a bunch of rules or laws. And in some ways, you know, Breaking laws that are unjust is not a, a bad thing. And yet you have to sit and wonder, you know, were these truly unjust laws? You know, when Uber spies on its competitors through an exploit of their app, is that an acceptable business practice? Is it predatory? Because it's not just one thing, right? It's how does disruption blur into manipulation or exploitation? But what's celebrated and what made Uber more of a celebrity cause was the fact that it had this very aggressive uh, macho cowboy frontiersman approach and it leveraged, you know, consumers as political constituents to support its efforts against regulators who were then, you know, trying to take away a service that was quite welcome by consumers. <laughs> 
but can you you also write that consumers themselves are uh, are at uh, risk, as you say, as you just said, manipulation by the by the system, by the company, uh, as as we are by uh, information that comes to us through through Facebook and the like. Um, are consumers? Are, how about you, as a consumer, knowing what you know? How do you how do you manage your ride hailing, you know, desires? Well, I'd say that it's really difficult for me to separate uh, my observational qualities as an ethnographer <laughs> from my experience of ride hailing. Um, although my experience as a Facebook user might be a little easier to keep in a, a personal space, but even then, <laughs> it's not as not as easy as that. But for consumers, there's this interesting issue of you know, should you be protected from exploitative practices? And maybe they're not truly exploitative. Maybe they're a form of, for example, price discrimination, but you might be miffed to learn that you've been targeted with a higher price uh, than perhaps the service is worth. And that actually, that tension came up around an experiment Uber conducted on pricing. This is very interesting because although Uber argues that it's a neutral middleman that just facilitates transactions like a credit card processor, you know, it started quietly separating what drivers earn from what passengers pay. So up until about 2016, uh, drivers had contracts that would say, okay, like Uber is going to charge the passenger a particular fare and drivers are going to pay a commission to Uber on that fare. So you might be paying 25% or 28% or 20%, depending on what your contract said, plus fees. So it really kind of came out to like a third that you were handing over to Uber, which, okay, that's like the rules of the game. Um, but Uber quietly started charging passengers a different amount than the drivers were earning per mile and per minute. And they discovered this experiment by comparing their pay stubs to what passengers were paying and then started crowdsourcing those discrepancies until through, of course, journalistic investigations as well, such as by Alison Griswold at Quartz, you know, Uber was revealed to have done this and potentially in violation of driver's contracts. They've been sued over this and I believe the a settlement is pending. Um, but it was able to sort of charge passengers more without giving drivers their fair share as well. And to some passengers that also felt like, oh, I'm being ripped off here. You know, it's just that it's hard to know. Um, and this constantly shifting uh, array of prices and wages is a characteristic of this environment where everything is subjected to testing and also to optimization. So you see again and again the ways that, you know, the culture of innovation in Silicon Valley, which involves, you know, a lot of experimentation, um, experimenting on your users can also leave them feeling distrustful of your services. Yeah. And it is, and it has either bypassed or overthrown the rules that have come to play to make it so that a worker in a business or a job can have some protections. You've talked about how some of these workers, these drivers, are use the same kinds of technologies to at least communicate with each other and share information, like you just said. Can they affect any kind of change? Can they, for example, organize in either the traditional notion of what we you know, thought of as union organizing or in some other way to have a better deal? Or are they at the mercy of the algorithms? Well, it's incredibly difficult to bargain with algorithms. Yeah. So 
there's, I mean, you've seen even in Seattle that as soon as drivers did attempt to organize, they, you know, I think there was a city that was sued by the Chamber of Commerce because independent contractors aren't allowed to formally unionize. And so you have this interesting tension where you have one central platform that is setting the prices for all of these independent contractors. And in fact, Uber has been sued um, and described in that lawsuit as a massive price fixing conspiracy. And that's because it's setting the prices <laughs> across all of these independent contractors. Uh, and yet the drivers themselves have faced like real legal challenges attempting to unionize to maybe gain some bargaining power uh, with their algorithmic managers. In other ways, you know, drivers will email back and forth with remote customer service robots and maybe get their fare back. And that implies some bargaining power, but it's quite weak. Like they really have very little bargaining power against, you know, the, their algorithmic bosses. And even when there have been physical protests, for example, outside of a particular uh, city office, even if they have some se some success in the short term, typically Uber will then just implement the policy later at another time. And part of the reason they can do this is because the workforce has such high churn. I think after like six months on the job, 68% of Uber drivers who started six months earlier are gone. And it's even a little higher for women. And so sustained collective identity um, isn't there even as drivers do build an institutional memory of Uber and how much they can trust it. I've seen this a lot in online forums where there is this long memory and when Uber implements one practice or tries out another feature or optimizes in a particular way, you know, it's reminiscent of an earlier practice. Uh, and so like drivers have built up an additional collective memory in these forms, um, but that doesn't mean they necessarily have a common identity or even a common occupational identity. A lot of drivers may not consider themselves occupationally as drivers. Um, a lot of them are part-time. Some of them are hobbyists. You know, I remember a, a driver named Nathan who uh, does psychotherapy sessions with clients who have PTSD and serious mental health issues. And he drove for Lyft, actually, as a source of emotional relief because you could have these fairly superficial interactions with passengers and not these really heavy, really intense uh, emotional exchanges with patients. And that was great. But like a driver like Nathan doesn't have the same vested interests as a driver who's working 14 hours a day to support his family, you know. And so you have this divide amongst driver motivations as well as the fact of churn. And I haven't seen the mentality of labor organizing interests amongst the vast majority of drivers that I've come into contact with or observed. There are certainly discrete outposts of organizing activities. But in my experience on the road with hundreds of Uber and Lyft drivers across more than 25 cities in the US and Canada, a lot of people do have this idea that they want a certain kind of independence. They just may not have it because they also have an algorithmic manager that is nudging them to behave in particular ways, but they still desire that fuller independence. Hmm. Maybe the, uh, the way of thinking about this work has not yet caught up with this relatively young industry and the way it operates. Can but you also, I mean, just, just keeping a handle on it is 
hard. I mean, the pricing policies and the different incentives and the the conditions of work change rapidly. And so even if you were picking your issue, you know, you'd be like, well, it's different now. <laughs> yeah. So you've driven with enough uh, uh, drivers and talked to enough drivers. Do you get a sense of how much, uh, the, the what's the spread of what they make? And is the churn due to a, a lack of, of income in the end? Or is the churn due to this is just a stopover towards a different career? So I think... Uber would argue that the churn rates are indicative that drivers are using this uh, as a stopgap solution between jobs or because there's an unexpected bill. Um, I think my experiences would indicate something else is going on. Uh, not for everybody, but you know, it takes a while to figure out what you're earning. You can be hired under this business model very, very quickly. You know, within days, you can be on the road. And that's great, right? You need to be like 21 years of age. You have to have a driver's license. You need personal insurance in most places, with some exceptions. You don't even need commercial insurance. And, you know, if your car is one of the type that Uber permits, like you're ready to go. But it takes months to figure out the rules and it takes months to figure out what your expenses are. You know, in the beginning, it's common for drivers to, to quote, you know, that they're earning what Uber or Lyft advertise that they're earning, like 30 bucks an hour or something. At one point, Uber claimed that the median driver income for New York City was a, upwards of $90,000 a year. And then the Federal Trade Commission investigated these claims and found that Uber, or at least sued Uber for recruiting drivers with exaggerated earnings. Uh, Uber later settled for $20 million. And it would be like, okay, uh, in 2015, Uber advertised that on like on Craigslist that drivers could earn $15 an hour. And the FTC would find that like less than 30% of drivers were actually making that. Um, there's been a lot of competing uh, announcements about what drivers are actually earning. It does certainly vary from driver to driver. They have different expenses, like a driver with a lease has a different expense than a driver who owns their car. For example, their insurance rates might, might be variable. But uh, Lawrence Michelle at the Economic Policy Institute sort of did this comprehensive analysis of all the different uh, credible sources of what drivers might be earning and found that drivers were making about $10.87 an hour after their expenses, but not accounting for the costs of you know, some of the costs of being an independent contractor, like providing for your health insurance or retirement savings. Some people have also said that Uber or Lyft or some of these companies are simply car car uh, selling companies because are a lot of the drivers also in contracts where they're paying for their car through Uber or the other companies? That's certainly true in some places. It's not true everywhere. Uh, New York City was certainly a hotbed for leased vehicles. Um, but in other cities where the requirements are lower, it it's different. So like Uber will set the conditions of which kinds of cars you can bring to work. And those conditions, they can also change over time. I remember a, a driver named Fernando in Boston uh, started working with Uber when it required cars to be made after a certain date. And so he and a bunch of his buddies went out to get new cars. You know, like forty thousand dollars later, you're on the road, um, or you're you're paying off your lease base, or you're you're 
contract afterwards. And then Uber changed those conditions and said, okay, you can have older vehicles. So the marketplace is suddenly flooded with drivers who were using like their junkier older cars. And Fernando's going like, I had a junky car in the, you know, in my backyard. I could have used that. Like, why am I, <laughs> why did I have to go buy another one? And meanwhile, he can't afford to quit because he still has to pay off this car and he's got bills to pay. You know, I remember it really stuck with me for so long because he just had this, this look. He was explaining that his, you know, his sons appreciated the disappointment he was experiencing. But there's also some shame in that. You know, like you were entering this job and it, you hope it might bring you the economic mobility that Uber rallied around with claims that drivers could earn $90,000 a year. And at the end of the day, you're stuck in a job you can't afford to quit. That's a very different scenario than the more celebrated trope that we often think about with disruption. Yeah, very much so. You know, uh, I think you called uh, the difference between Uber and Lyft. I think you wrote that Uber was like uh, your your chauffeur drive and Lyft was uh, the, the way they market themselves. Uber was yeah. like your chauffeur driver and Lyft was like a friend with the car. Uh, and and I can see how those two different sort of marketing ideas are playing out. But underneath, are they basically the same companies in terms of the way they treat their drivers? They have really similar business practices. You know, I often jokingly describe Lyft as like Canadian Uber. Like they're doing a lot of the same stuff. They just, you know, they have avoided the storm of very public challenges Uber has run into. I mean, Uber came at this with this much more sort of arrogant, macho disruption ethos. And as a result, it's a more of a target. Uh, it, it, when it comes to drivers, you know, they have very similar policies, uh, surveillance, uh, pay rates, but uh, Lyft tends to be a little better at its communications with drivers. They have uh, a little more trust in Lyft, even if they're being paid the same or even slightly less sometimes, like in some cases. And so drivers will often say, or often did during my field work, that they prefer Lyft, but they get more business with Uber because Uber had a much more dominant marketplace position. Is that still the case? I mean, this is pretty current research you've done. Well, it really changes over time, like from city to city, right? Like I've been in some cities like uh, Salt Lake City where drivers could sign up for just Lyft, for example, and feel that they didn't need to sign up for an additional company. But I would say it's pretty common. Well, it was common in my research for a couple of methodology reasons, but also just in general for drivers to have experience with more than one company or at least to have heard of comparable experiences with the other companies. And so it was usually they'd be signed up for Lyft and Uber. And possibly others as well, depending on like their local circumstances. I see. You know, I know we touched on this, but um, Sarah Lacey, a journalist that you're familiar with, uh, called Uber a lawless organization. Is it? Well, it's certainly been accused of breaking a lot of laws. In my experience, like what interests me is the way that it sort of uses different narratives to explain what it's doing. Um, so even if there are laws that could apply, that could hinder its business model, there's this resistance or hesitation sometimes by regulators not to enforce it because Uber might leverage popular consumer support to stop cities from cracking down on services that they benefit from. I see. 
And but you can certainly, I mean, that gray zone is just evident everywhere. It's especially evident in the working relationships between uh, drivers and their employer, because although Uber bills drivers as entrepreneurs, uh, my research demonstrates that they're actually managed by algorithmic bosses. And that can be a real tension rod in legal debates over whether drivers are misclassified. Like if they're maybe they should be employees and they should deserve a minimum wage, for example. Um, and so there's that interesting tension and it's about whether or not you're breaking labor law. <laughs> but that's not the only kinds of laws that Uber has tried to evade or um, potentially has been in violation of. You know, the FTC did find them <laughs> or they settled for 20 million dollars for uh, recruiting drivers with exaggerated earnings uh, when regulators did try to crack down on Uber. Uber developed a system called grayballing, where it would display to uh, passengers it identified as potential regulators. It might display to them phantom cars, something I actually found much earlier in my research, uh, because drivers would use the passenger app to try and scout out where other drivers were in a one-mile radius. And they, one of them, a number of them noticed this, but a driver named Heather confirmed with Uber that actually these were just, you know, according to, to an Uber CSR, these were just uh, visual effects, like screensaver. So what she saw on her screen were a couple of black sedans clustered at her pickup location in kind of a remote area at two in the morning. And she was like, there's no way these drivers are here. And she like looks out the window and of course there's no drivers there. And it's like, what's going on? You sort of expect that what's on your screen reflects the accurate number of and location of Uber drivers available to you as a passenger. And it turned out that these were phantoms, but phantoms that might persuade you as a consumer to choose Uber over something else, over a competitive service, were also deployed as a deceptive tactic against regulators who specifically were trying to enforce the law. Yeah, that's very disturbing that that happens, uh, that they can manipulate us through images to stick around rather than trying another app. You know, well, you can't believe everything that's on your screen. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the lesson, right? I was wondering, given the way Uber has been um, perceived in the, in the public domain, how are other companies taking in their successes as well as their, their failures? How are other companies analyzing the lessons of Uber and Uberland? I think some companies look at Uber and say, oh, no, they are hemorrhaging user trust. You know, how can we build trust-based customer service with our workforce as opposed to bad customer service with our, you know, whether it's with our workers or with our actual customers? Um, and I think they look at Uber and say, well, like, what's going to happen? Like, on the one hand, Uber is a household name, and that may have partly been propelled by the sheer number of scandals that they've accumulated over, you know, a decade. Um, and their valuation is very high. So maybe that's something to emulate. On the other hand, they're a target for any sort of entrepreneurial regulator. Um, and not just because of their own practices, but because Silicon Valley is coming under increased scrutiny. They provide infrastructural services that we are dependent on. And yet, they operate in the wild west of technology, like the rules don't apply. I mean, even Uber would identify itself as a technology company and not a transportation company and say, well, we don't have to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act and provide accessible services because we're not a transportation company, which is, you know, so then there are regulations that govern transportation companies that are meant to, like, provide accessible services. And so it, 
it's other companies are looking at it in a couple of ways, right? It's like on the one hand, okay, even if you lose consumer trust, are you really losing their business? Like a lot of people after uh, President Trump enacted a travel ban for people coming from seven, I think it was seven Muslim majority countries, there was this moment where uh, the New York City Taxi Drivers Alliance was striking against this policy, like in support of uh, immigrants, Muslims, human rights, a whole host of things. And Uber turned off surge pricing, which was widely perceived to be a form of strike breaking, of scabbing, basically. Um, and so there was this massive moment where people started a delete Uber campaign. And that was, you know, I, I don't know if it lasted. I don't know if people for like furtively downloaded it again afterwards. I know it's popular for people to say to me in particular that they, you know, prefer to use Lyft like, or something like that. Uh, they probably say it to me because they assume I have a critical stance about one or another company. But you know, there's there's damage there in the trusted relationship for a variety of reasons, and that partly has to do with how Uber has allied with so many political causes. I mean, Lyft, had, uh, one of Lyft's funders is, of course, Peter Thiel, who was also one of the first people to support President Trump, and Lyft faced nothing near like that kind of backlash from its consumers. And so you have a consumer trust problem, but you have a second problem, which is that even if you are successful as a company at leveraging popular support for your services, a regulatory crackdown is coming, and it's coming for Silicon Valley. You know, like Facebook is being uh, examined and grilled in front of senators and congressmen. Like, there's, it's coming, and so it may even if you manage to maintain uh, a relationship with your consumers because you provide a popular service, you might then risk becoming the subject of regulation and maybe even overregulation that might hinder your business model and your ability to grow. And so I think Uber's looked at as kind of this maven, but also a risk and potentially a target. Hmm. Uh, two last things, and then, and then I'll, I'll let you go. I, this is a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having such wonderful questions. You, you are a technology ethnographer. That's what, that's what you yeah. define yourself as. Define that discipline for me. So an ethnographer is someone who learns from strangers. You know, they observe people and how they, in my case, how they interact with technology and work. And then they take what they learn and analyze, you know, what those findings are compared to, in my case, how those people are narrated, what popular views of their culture is. So when Uber claims that drivers are entrepreneurs, and I find that drivers are being managed by algorithms from observing how they are working and how they are restricted and how their choices are monitored, I go, oh, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> this is a finding This says drivers are managed by algorithms and they're not in fact these like freewheeling entrepreneurs as they've been narrated. And so basically my job is to learn from strangers by being an unobtrusive but interested observer of their lives, their work, their, their interactions, and then to write about it. And, and for Uberland itself, was there, you just described it, I understand, but was there, a, was there an aha moment? I mean, why did this captivate you? You know, I'd say that the, like, your findings as an ethnographer, as a technology ethnographer, really come from fundamental moments of dissonance, where you go, wait a minute, that's, that's what it is? And this happened 
a couple of times, but like in a in a narrow example, you know, drivers were receiving messages that they were going to earn more that because Uber was going to lower their rates. And you could imagine if your boss comes to you and says, "Hey, like great news. We're going to lower your pay and you're going to earn more." And you'd be like, "What are you talking about? Like that sounds ridiculous." And drivers were like, "That's Orwellian. This is Uber math. This is never going to work." But Uber was presenting it as like they'd show up with the map, with the with a graph and say like, "Look, this is the case." And I was like, "Huh. <clears throat> These moments where Uber has used a sort of macroeconomic logic to say that on the whole, if more, if we lower the prices, more passengers might theoretically use the service, and so earnings might theoretically go up. Um, and it's really clashing with how this work has been narrated, which is that every driver is principally concerned with their own take-home pay at the end of the day. They're not part of this collective group. And so it was this moment where I was like, oh, this is a problem with macroeconomic logic when it comes to this workforce. This is like, you know, if there's a spouse who cheated on their other spouse and got, you know, and their their spouse was mad and they said, like, what's going on? And you try to reassure them by saying, well, honey, on the whole, infidelity is on the decline. Like this particular individual instance is not a big deal. There were moments like that, but I would say there's bigger moments that came sometimes out of my direct conversations with senior Uber employees. And I remember that, you know, after discussing some of algorithmic management, when one of a couple actually of Uber's senior employees, they turned to me and said, well, how can we improve our relationship with our end users? And the language was amazing to me because it fundamentally blurred categories. And that to me is a lot of how Uber manages to rewrite the rules of work. It blurs categories and makes it confusing as to which rules should apply. What protection should apply? You know, what rights do you have? And calling them consumers was something I'd seen Uber do in legal instances where I thought it was like a clever bit of legal work, you know, in argument in, in lawsuits over whether drivers were independent contractors or whether they were misclassified. Uber's lawyers made the argument that drivers were actually just consumers of Uber's technology, just like passengers. And so by removing drivers from the category of like workers with jobs with, with you, you're saying like, well, like the, the labor protections don't apply here. You know, you're a consumer now. And so what Uber was doing, like when they when they reified that argument just in conversation, I was like, wow, like you fundamentally have like created this shift where Drivers are billed as entrepreneurs, classified as independent contractors, and now they're being sort of conceived of as simply users of your services in the same way you're an end user for Facebook or for Google. And that basically moves drivers away from the world of work and redefines them as consumers. And that's to me where a fundamental insight of Uberland lies. It's the fact that if you think about drivers and how they're treated on Uber's platform and you think, oh, that's just a user just like me, you know, how are we all treated by the algorithms that manage us across different platforms? It's just easier to see it when it comes to Uber's drivers because their livelihoods are on the line. And so when your algorithmic manager deceives you about what you're going to earn, that resonates in a way that, you know, getting a lousy recommendation for a rom-com on Netflix doesn't because the stakes are different. Yes, though as an ever-expanding um, influence on our lives, these technologies are probably rife for 
ripe for more exploration. What's next for you? Where do you what are you going to look at next as a as a technology ethnographer? Well, actually, because so, <laughs> I would tell bedtime stories to my kids at the end of my my trips and my research and whatever I'd been reading about in the news was also the fodder for all these bedtime stories. And they were parodies, you know, of technology, you know, a self-driving car. And one of my stories would be a headless car. And, you know, it's really just a couple of kids driving the car and the adults can't see their head above the wheel. And so it you know, looks like a self-driving car. Um, and <laughs> And, you know, it was just like this fun thing we would do. And myself and my kids actually together started writing down these stories about adults who were tricked uh, by children, but they actually thought the technology was tricking them. You know, and so like these kids are like these invisible people in the machines. And so we've been writing down parodies, sometimes deriving directly from my research and sometimes just that exists in the world of technology and saying like, okay, like what's happening here? What are the real dynamics here? So I'm writing a kid's book about technology with my kids. That's oh, what's next for me. I think that's great. And I bet it, and that sounds like it's a good way of thinking about how these disruptions are affecting us. That's great. Thank um, you. All right, Alex, thank you very much. That was, that was really good. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Stephen. I really appreciate the conversation that we had. All right. Thank you. Yes, me too. Thank you. Take care. Take care. The social scientist, Alex Rosenblatt. She's author of Uberland, How Algorithms Are Rewriting the Rules of Work. She's coming to Town Hall, Seattle, November 27th, 7.30. She'll be at the University Lutheran Church in the U District. Perhaps she'll arrive by Uber. You can find out more about her visit and all the events at Town Hall by going to their website, townhallseattle.org. Thanks for listening to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Drop me a line, S-S-C-H-E-R at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review, will you? Give it some stars and let other people know that you're listening to it. It helps the podcast get more listeners. Talk to you again. Thanks a lot.